Covenant, and uh, he uh, spoke to us about that, and also uh, we had a, a, a word, I think, to a number of us about um, freedom in Christ, and that was very good, and I think some of that's going to come up again this morning. And uh, this week we're looking at the topic, Greater Sacrifice, in chapters 9 and 10. This is a fabulous part of the uh, letter to the Hebrews. So I hope you get as much from it as I did when I was preparing over the last couple of weeks. We're not going to read it all together, you'll be glad to know, but I'm going to pick out bits as I'm going through and we'll work with those. So to our best understanding, uh, the author, who is really unknown, is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who, like most Christians in the first century, are struggling in the face of persecution regarding their new faith. So maybe these Jewish Christians are drawing comfort from mixing their faith. Maybe um, they were thinking of returning to their old faith of, uh, of Judaism. Um, maybe they were just deceived by some teaching into, into trying to do um, more than the one thing. We don't really know. We aren't completely sure. Maybe it was all of those. It's, uh, it's not clear to us. Um, but that's the background that we have as we go through this letter. Um, in any case, what I found is the, the letter to the Hebrews brings out some really fantastic revelations about God, Jesus, and us. And he helps the original readers and us to understand the fullness of God's plan. We like to call it God's story um, and uh, how our Christian faith and hope is really the fulfillment of Judaism and of all that God has been doing throughout human history. We have to get into a few details about Jewish worship uh, in order to do that. So I know some of you will know a lot about the Old Testament and the tabernacle and the temple and... Um, Others of you will know little about it, and others of you will not want to know anything about it, right? Because you'll decide that it's either not practical or it's just too complicated. So bear with me, stay with me a bit, and we'll see what we can discover together and uh, try to keep your minds open as we, as we go through that. Here's the thing. When God set out on his plan for the fullness of time to bring us back to him, to redeem the whole of creation which had been corrupted by a rebellion. He first instructed his chosen descendants, chosen people, the descendants of Abraham this way. They escaped from Egypt and around 445, 450 BC, God instructed them to obey certain commandments and laws and to build a tabernacle. A little depiction there. It's really um, not much more than a tent with a surrounding fence, as you can see. And he gave them very precise instructions um, to make this his dwelling place. Uh, he, he was very clear on what must happen there and what must not, and how it should be built and what size it should be and all of those things. Then many years, 500 years later, David, King David, 
wanted to build a build God a real house, not just a tent. And um, God wouldn't let him. God said, um, no, but your son can build that. And uh, Solomon eventually built the temple. And again, God gave very precise instructions as to how that temple would look, what size it would be, what size, what it would be made of. It was lavishly ordained, but really it was followed basically the same pattern um, as the tabernacle. The layout really didn't change. And in both the tabernacle and the temple, there were two inner parts in that picture there, kind of under that little building. There, there was um, the holy place and the most holy place. The second one sometimes called the holy of holies. And they were divided by a curtain, quite a substantial curtain, but a curtain. And this was the pattern that God had himself described. Right? He described this clearly and, and in great detail, as I said. And the spiritual lives of his chosen people revolved around this tabernacle and temple for around 1,500 years. So, and it wasn't designed by man. The layout wasn't an accident. I believe it has significance and we need to understand the basics and the author of Hebrews helps us uh, do that. Um, we can get at that this morning. So I've been reading through the Old Testament year this year as a kind of second half of our reading program. If you remember last year, some of us read the whole Bible and some of us just read the New Testament and Psalms, right? I, I couldn't manage anyway. So this year I've been trying to read the Old Testament um, and I've been reading what seems like months. I've been reading through the regulations in the book of Mo- books of Moses. Um, I got through them now. I'm past, but there's a lot there, right? How many of you started an Old Testament reading program and, and gave up in the middle of Leviticus? Uh huh. <laughs> Doesn't that happen? It's uh, it's like the um, I don't know. The black hole of Old Testament reading, or many go in, not not so many come out, right? So there's a lot of detail about laws, offerings, sacrifices, and it's very strange um, to us, hard to relate to, right? Um, For hundreds of years since Abraham, God required sacrifices and offerings day by day, event after event. Um, In the law of Moses, really every unclean act required some kind of recompense of that sort. And there are burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, peace offerings, offerings for uncleanliness. There are offerings that priests had to make for themselves, for their own uncleanness, before they could make offerings for the people, for their sins and uncleanness some fixed ceremonies, some for individual people, um, some regarding life events. Uh, we could read the book of Leviticus this morning and see how long it takes you to get to sleep. Not, we won't do that. No, we're way too cruel. Fortunately, the writer to Hebrews gives us a praise seat, which helps us a lot. So we're going to come to that in a moment. And you can uh, give us a kind of a quick summary of what's going on.
As I said, the most important feature of the tabernacle and the temple were the two inner areas accessible only to priests. The holy places where the priests went about their religious duties on a more or less daily basis, I think. But the most holy place was for the high priest and just once a year. The holiest of places. Now the author is is a Jew. He's writing to Jews so they understand the holiness of God and the readers and author alike. So we have to think about that a bit more. So what does holy mean? We like to dialogue, and I like to ask you difficult questions. So what does holy mean? Any, any ideas? Holy, not full of holes. Don't you dare, James. <laughs> Go on. Set apart. Yep, set apart. Is that good? That's, that's what I do. When I read the word holy, I, in my mind, I kind of change it to set apart to make sure that it's going on up here and I'm, and I'm understanding it. It means dedicated or consecrated to God um, for a religious purpose. It can mean sacred. But I think a good description of the word is just to say set apart, separated, set apart. The Holy of Holies was definitely set apart, right? It was a perfect cube, both in the tabernacle and the temple, and it had the, which means it had the same dimensions for width, length, width, height, cube, right? And the author summarizes uh, for us, um, as the author summarizes for us, the high priest entered there once a year, but let's go to Hebrews 9, 6 and see what it says. Hebrews 9, verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, and the preparations were lots of special garments. We were arguing this morning about where it's an ephod or an ephod. But anyway, that thing, lots of special garments. Um, the priest goes regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So I said they had those specific garments. Um, and the, the Day of Atonement was the time when, uh, when that uh, special entry would take place. And failure to obey those regulations was literally life-threatening. So there's an incident in Leviticus chapter 10. I have it written here so I can read it to you. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came down out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all people, I will be honored. So that's quite a serious thing, right? Such was and is the holiness of God that the penalty of not following the rules could be death. Towards the end of... uh, Hebrews chapter 10, the writer concludes, it is a dreadful or fearful thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. We should have no doubt about God's power and his holiness. As Christians, we focus on God's love and grace rather than his holiness. But I think it's important for us to recognize that God hasn't changed. I don't want to seem irreverent, but often we behave as though God has grown soft and cuddly with age. Like me. Not like me. That something has happened that has made a difference. But it's not that, right? He's not grown soft. That isn't the way we should be looking at this. So we'll get to, sh- to shortly what has happened. But God is God, and he is powerful, and he is holy. In our main passage for today, the author of Hebrews relates those Old Testament rituals and the tabernacle and the temple directly to Christ. Let's uh, read from uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, this is why we needed some understanding of Old Testament laws and and worship. And this, to me, is a fabulous passage. This makes my heart leap. Um, To take a sideways look at the first part, first in in verse uh, 11, because it it boggles me. Also, it helps set the scene. So verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered question time still with me good what is the tent of which he speaks sorry heaven us interesting the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation. Where is it? Ah, I'm asking questions that are too hard. Let me ask a different question. This is kind of tricky as well. What in this room is not of this creation? Uh, what in this room is not of this creation? Huh. Tricky. 
Everything we see around us that we can touch is of this creation, right? So I, I don't work. So what is not? Huh? I can only think of two things maybe. One thing would be the Holy Spirit. Right? Because the Holy Spirit is divine and was not created. The other thing that came to mind that might not be of this creation is love. I don't know. Did God create love? Or was love? I think it feels like love was there before creation. Or maybe other emotions too. But they're the things that are not of this creation. And here we have this tent that's spoken of in this verse that is not of this creation. So I don't think it can be us. I think he's means a tabernacle that is not in this country, not in this world, not in this universe, and is outside of all of those things. And Jesus went there. Christ went there. Last week, uh, we read um, in chapter 8, they, that is the priests, serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. So he's saying the earthly priests, um, B.C., served at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The implication is those instructions were precise because there are a copy of something elsewhere in heaven. See, it boggles me. I don't know about you, but wow. Later on uh, in, the, in chapter 9 that we're in at the moment, it says, it was necessary then for the copies on earth of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear in God's presence. So the the author here is claiming that the earthly tabernacle, the tent that you saw earlier, is a copy of the true one. I don't know how literal to take that. Um, but as sinful beings, we cannot be in the presence of God. There is a separation force between the unholy and the holy, so that the holy remains holy and pure. Except for Christ, we cannot enter the presence of God. So there's truly a barrier, whether that's a physical curtain as we would visualize it or something else that is more difficult for us to even imagine and visualize, I don't know. But the writer is saying there is a true holy of holies in heaven itself. And the the tabernacle and the temple described to Moses and to Solomon are a copy, a shadow of what is in heaven. And uh, Hebrews is not the only place where we see this idea either. The, The temple plays a role in the book of Revelation too. And uh, the temple in Revelation is not on this earth. Revelation 11. 
God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. So the temple reappears again in some sense in that uh, vision that uh, John has in Revelation. So we can definitely see that the tabernacle, the thing that we see on earth that uh, the Jews had, wasn't just an idea God had to teach us about his holiness and the consequences of our sin, though it certainly does that. It was an earthly reflection of a greater reality that exists outside of creation, where God, the Alpha and Omega, was, is, and will be. The older I get, the more I think about that, that there is a reality that is out of sight, that is outside of creation. And what we see with our eyes is so much less than is really there. You can figure out for yourself while I would think about that as I get older, but there you go. Let's connect back to our passage in Hebrews. Let's go back to that uh, Hebrews 9 uh, and uh, verse 11. When Christ, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that had come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. So he offered his own blood. This might be an easier question. What did John the Baptist say when he first saw Jesus? David has it. Behold the Lamb of God. And he only said behold in the, um, in the King James. In the NIV, he says, look. <laughs> look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. <laughs> John understood that Jesus was the offering that God was providing to take away the sins of the world. And being a Jew, um, he, his followers would immediately connect, he and his followers would immediately connect that to the temple sacrifices for sins, uncleanness, the remembrance of Passover, all of that they would connect with, with that statement. Sorry? Oh, right. We're now into ESV. We, we, our Bibles in the pews are, are NIV, which is why we try to quote verses in NIV, but we don't always succeed. Isn't that right? Excuse me. It's a big ask, isn't it, to take away the sins of the world. I've decided that the title of our message this morning is wrong. At least it's an understatement. I, I don't think it should be called greater sacrifice. I think it should be called the greatest sacrifice. The greatest sacrifice. Jesus entered the true holy place as the great high priest. And he did not bring the blood of animals to secure his entry. He brought his own blood, the greatest sacrifice, right? The greatest sacrifice. 
another question for you. I told you there'd be many questions this morning. Let's check in. You're staying awake. What happened in the temple when Jesus died on the cross? The what? Ah, oh, so many answered at once I couldn't even hear. Good. Good. We're getting there. Yes. The curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies was torn in two from top to bottom. What's the significance of that? Sorry? We have entry into the holy place. Oh, we can see into it. James is a bit scared about the idea of going in, I can see. Sorry? God did it. Absolutely. Yeah. Top to bottom. God did it. God broke this this old pattern. God let us into the holy place. The, the presence of God is open for all. Right? And no more sacrifices needed. The temple is done at that point. We can say that effectively... The, his entry into the holiest place in heaven demolished the temple. It demolished it. Well, physically speaking, you know, it was 40 years before the Romans pulled the temple down in Jerusalem. Um, but spiritually, it was over at that point. Jesus gave himself on the cross the greatest sacrifice. The temple is done. We ripped it apart. I don't know. We've blown the roof off. It's done. The sacrifice of Christ didn't just pay the penalty for our sins. It blew the house down. Right? Overload. Think of it this way. He didn't make the mortgage payment for the month. He didn't make a whole year's mortgage payments. He paid off the whole loan and... He bought the bank. No more loans. The whole lot. It's, it's gone, exploded, done. It ended the sacrifice under God's law, the law of Moses. So 1,500 years of sin offering, grain offering, guilt offering, peace offering, they were over at that point. The greatest sacrifice. Boom, Right? Who's read the C.S. Lewis Narnia stories, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? I'm just checking on you, you see, because I'm wondering if it's only baby boomers that have read that book. I, the, the younger folk didn't wave a lot. So if you haven't read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, spoiler alert, please block your ears, right? Um, what happened after Aslan the Lion is sacrificed on the stone table? It breaks in two. Who was that? Oh, it was Casey. All right, okay, see. Casey's read it. See? Right. <laughs> it's a lovely book. It's a children's story, but you can read it as an adult. Absolutely. Do. So it's an allegory, but the picture may help us understand. When Aslan was sacrificed on the table, it broke in two. The table is no more. It's done. It's gone. It's not usable again. The same for the temple. 
Further down in chapter 10 of Hebrews, we read um, this. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. It's a game changer. It's a pivotal moment in God's story. One sacrifice. So God is still holy, but now entry into his presence is possible, not because God has gone soft. I say that carefully. But because of the sacrifice of Christ, the greatest sacrifice. The uniqueness and finality of that ultimate sacrifice is repeated over and over by the author in Hebrews here so I just collected a few together Um, Hebrews 9.12 he entered once for all into the holy place in Hebrews 10 it says but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins then later on but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He says the same thing over and over again to these Hebrews. It's done. There's nothing left to turn back to, guys, Hebrews. The temple is done. You can try and do sacrifices if you like, but he's already blown the lid off that. It's done. It's obsolete. It's finished. Those sacrifices are now not relevant. The sacrifice of Christ is once for all and complete. And there's no continuingly. There's nothing else. The greatest sacrifice. We so easily underestimate the significance of this. From from my viewpoint... The two most significant moments in the entirety of human history are the incarnation, when God took human form, and the crucifixion and resurrection, when God gave himself as a sacrifice for us, dealt with sin, and the consequence of death rose back to life. Nothing else comes close to that. Does it? The greatest sacrifice. And not just for us, if that that wasn't enough, but the whole of creation. So when man turned away from God, the whole of creation became broken. Not just us. The fall affected everything. It says in Romans chapter 8, we won't go there tonight, we're here today, we don't have enough time, but for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and glory of the children of God. It was for us and for all the creation the greatest sacrifice. New life, new world, new relationship with God. Okay, let's, let's dialogue a bit more. 
This is perhaps another difficult question. Actually, there are multiple answers to this question. Where is the temple now? In us is a good answer. I'm waiting for James to say, under the dome of the rock. This is uncool. Also true. Yeah? Sorry, who's that? In heaven, it's supposed to come down again. Yes. Oh, in heaven. Yes, now. Yes, and will and will it? Yes. Um, and if you go all the way to the end of uh, Revelation, there is a city, and in that city there is no temple, because the dwelling of God is with men, and the city is the place, the temple where God dwells. But we don't diverge. The temple is the place where God dwells and where God meets man, where man and God deal, right? In uh, chapter 10, the author comes back to the same quote he used in chapter 8. David read it to us last week. Uh, It's the quote from Jeremiah. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds in us. Then uh, other place in the New Testament, in in, uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we read, Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple? You yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Okay, that's what Paul says. There's another verse uh, three chapters further on. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So Paul is clear that we are God's temple with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And he's not talking, he's, he's talking both about individually and collectively. We need to remember that too. Both individually and collectively, we are God's temple. That's amazing, right? That's amazing. So God has turned this inside out, literally, from following regulations and sacrifices and offerings and being denied access to the holy place where God is. Now, God is in us. And he has made us his holy place. That's amazing. And what does that imply about our role now in the world? If we are God's temple, if we are the place where God and man deal, then what does that make us in the world? Well, 
it says in many places it makes us ambassadors it makes us priests we are the place where people who do not yet know God meet God right our favorite uh, phrase the family of missionary disciples we are that place because we are that temple where God meets man someone who is not saved by the blood of Christ cannot enter God's presence but they can experience God through us as his ambassadors as his priests greatest sacrifice and that's not because we're any better right let's not pretend that somehow we were perfected or that God is less holy but because Jesus has entered heaven to do away with the sin by the sacrifice to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself he has appeared once for all time it says in Hebrews 10 at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself the greatest sacrifice sacrifice has allowed us as sinful fallen beings to be in the presence of holy God and for him to dwell in us we're transformed new life, new hope new relationship with God is that not the greatest sacrifice? I know you think yes So, how should we respond to all this? Well, if you've not reached the place of accepting that the sacrifice of Christ is for you, you have to start there, right? It's really important. It's a life or death thing. Man rebelled from God. We are by nature and birth lost and excluded from God's presence and our Heavenly Father has provided a door to get back at great cost, the greatest sacrifice. And it's truly on us if we choose not to walk through it. He took his own blood into the temple outside of this creation to make this happen. And if you have any doubts that where you stand about accepting that sacrifice for you. You must sort that out. It's really important. Today, pray. Go ask. Pray with a friend this morning. Unless you accept the sacrifice of Christ for you, then you're still in the Old Testament state, which leaves you no way to draw close to God. You can't enter his presence without that sacrifice being for you without that incredible work that Jesus did. So, please, if, if that's you, if God is saying, if you're feeling that in your heart, that you need to take that step, then take it today, because it's so important. I think most of you are beyond that point. But none of us have truly, fully comprehended what that greater sacrifice did for us, I think. It's a journey. And part of that journey is learning to distinguish between our old life in Christ let me start again our life in Christ and our old learned behavior 
because we lapse into our old ways and we get caught in our old ways of thinking, right? In our head, we know that the greatest sacrifice made for us is final, once for all, and complete. Just been through all of that. We don't need to offer anything. Truthfully, we don't have anything to offer anyway. Uh, comparable to the sacrifice that we've been talking about. However, we are complicated, are we not? Though we know that, we devise workarounds. We imagine that if we attend church most Sundays, we'll get better treatment from God. We imagine that if we keep to our Bible reading plan, I'm still there, God will smile on us. We, we let ourselves believe that if we are better, if we only tell a few lies, then we'll get better treatment than Bill and Liz, our neighbors down the road, who are always lying, right? So we like to invent or reinvent a set of laws that we can reasonably keep to, keep to and then find a way to mark ourselves A+. Plus and at least do better than our neighbors. That's not what it's about. Can you see how self-deceiving that is? In effect, we're adding to Christ's sacrifice with our own petty observances and and self-imposed rules. You don't do that, right? Well, I think we all do that sometimes and to some extent. That's not what it's about. Now, of course, I'm not saying that any of those activities, meeting with other Christians, worship, Bible study, are undesirable. But the attitude that they are somehow adding to or taking place of the sacrifice leads to death, not life. It's actually Old Testament thinking. It denies our heritage as the children of God if we think that way. A similar attitude, I think, is if you're really hard on yourself, if you're always condemning yourself day after day to try to do better, to always be on your own case, right? To, to really strive and strive and strive and, and kind of punish yourself. I feel that then you're essentially making that your sacrifice. There's... There's good in discipline, but are we thinking that we are justified by our self-sacrifice? Closing analogy again, it's like this for me. Are you renting or are you buying? Right? So when you own, you have no rent. Right? When Jesus pays the price... You have no rent, and you have no property taxes either. That's a New Jersey joke. Sorry, didn't get that one. (laughs) The greatest sacrifice was final, and God does not call us to carry on sacrificing, but to accept that sacrifice and enter into new life with him. And that life brings freedom, and that brings a lot of things that you want to do, that God is asking you and and, uh, encouraging you to do, but it doesn't bring a whole load of rules and and things that must be done in order for you to be justified before God. So we have to be really careful of that. 
It was a once-for-all sacrifice. Last week, David uh, <clears throat> spoke about uh, the greater covenant, and God was talking about our freedom in Christ as well as we, uh, as we shared in response. What freedom was there in the offerings and sacrifices of the tabernacle and the, t- and the temple? I see a lot of regulation and not much freedom, but Jesus has blown that away. So we're no longer behind the curtain. He is in us. We have confidence to enter the presence of God. There's a passage I want to just read now, which is towards the end of chapter 10. It says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body and since we have a great priest over the house of God let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful Confidence, full assurance. Have you ever known anyone who would um, act unpredictably and aggressively at things that seemed kind of not important, inconsequential? Maybe you say they had a prickly personality, or there's probably a better word for it that I can't think of. Um, they were just uncomfortable to be around. Um, your primary intent around them was to avoid them exploding or reacting in undesirable ways. A few years back, I had a boss uh, that was like that. I felt like I was tiptoeing on eggshells around the office. Um, You could talk with him, but only about things that were safe. And you had to make sure that you heard a story the right way from the right person the first time or he'd get unpredictable and jump to unfair conclusions. And you didn't want to introduce us anything that might put him into a tirade or or get him on a a long rant about something that was really outside of your control anyway. I remember one occasion we had a misunderstanding which set him off. He didn't speak to me for two weeks. He just grunted when I said hello in passing. It it sounds very childish, doesn't it? Um, But it happened. Have you known people like that? Or hopefully you're not a person like that. I tell you that story because I think that's sometimes how we behave before God. We have this image in our head. We treat him as though he was the, he's the big ogre that must not be provoked. The way that we saw some of the stories in the Old Testament, maybe that was a way that they needed to think. But I've been calling this attitude God appeasement. God appeasement. Our attitude is not one of confidence, assurance, freedom, but of appeasement. We somehow believe that God is always mildly angry with us, and we must control our interactions to ensure we stay on his better side. 
read the verses again. <laughs> we have a new and living way. We enter his presence with confidence because of what Jesus has done. We are no longer the guilty ones. We are the ones who are freed by the blood of Christ. We have direct access to God through Jesus, and we have the privilege of the presence of God in us. We can enter his place with confidence. We can draw near to the throne of grace. Over the last uh, few years, my um, favorite verse has been uh, one, this one in Romans 8. Um, I find I'm always quoting it to myself kind of daily. It's, uh, it's not a ritual. It just happens. It's just like it comes out in a multitude of circumstances. It's uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 2. So I memorized this 40 years ago in the RSV. So I say it to myself first person as, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Fantastic. The law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. We don't have time to study that this morning, but the spirit gives freedom and life. Step out of the condemnation. Believe the promise and walk in the spirit. When we have people or circumstances or emotions that bring you down, certainly that bring me down, claim the promise. The law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Live life in the spirit. Sin is still a reality. I'm not saying that that is any different. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Walk with him. Claim the promise. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Recognize that you are the temple where God meets sinful man, the mediators, the ambassadors, the priests, and stand in the gap for those around you. Show them God. Be transformed by the greatest sacrifice and never stop remembering and giving him thanks. It was, and it is, the greatest sacrifice. Are you ready to give thanks? All right. We're going to thank God together uh, for his greatest sacrifice by taking communion together. I'm going to pray, and then Jay will come up, and we're going to do things a little bit differently this morning, so you'll be fine. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross, that you offered your own blood in the, that temple, which is not part of creation, and you set us free. Thank you for the greatest sacrifice, the final once-for-all sacrifice to do away with sin. And thank you, thank you that we have a new relationship with you, that we are no longer stuck outside or behind the curtain, Lord, but your Holy Spirit is within us and we have new life and new hope. Thank 